Well, this evening we're going to begin a series of lessons. Some of them will be all connected to each other, and some of them will, will might seem a little disjointed. But a series of lessons on the doctrine of the church. We call the doctrine of the church ecclesiology. Taken from the word that's used in the New Testament, ecclesia, that's translated church. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. And we are going to eventually get to the little the booklet, The Glory of a True Church by Benjamin Keach and work our way through that. But un- until we get to that point or before we get there, I want to lay some of the groundwork for that. As I said previously, Keach was one of the men who lived during the time our confession was written. And so we want to lay some groundwork and look back through some of the things that our confession says and then we'll turn to Keach to let him help us understand how a man living in that time put those things into practice so that what we confess, can we can sort of see it playing out in, in real time uh, from a man who was living in that time period and, and kind of get a better understanding of what they meant as they put together our confession of faith. Ecclesiology... You all have heard me say this, and I'll I'll continue to say it. Ecclesiology is a big deal. Ecclesiology is very, very important for us. To, To try to stir you up to think of the importance of it, I want to read to you some of the names that the Bible gives to the church. And these were in a in a a book written by a man named Edward Drapes, who also lived in the 17th century. And and all of us could have put this list together. But some of the names for the church of God uh, in the Scriptures. How does God describe the church? The house of God, the city of God, the body of Christ, the mountain of God, of the Lord, the vineyard of the Lord, the garden of Christ, the tabernacle of God, the bride of Christ, the flock of Christ, who is the chief shepherd. Surely when we hear titles like that describing the church, we ought to recognize or at least begin to recognize that when we talk about the church, we're talking about something very very precious. If not precious to us, precious to the Lord. Now some of you I know already have a very high view of of the church. Others may have a lower view of the church, but I think it's safe to say that none of us have a view of the church which yet matches the view that Christ has of His church. We, We just finished reading through the Song of Solomon and there are some statements in there that we think, that's, that's not the language that most of us men feel comfortable using with our own wives. And yet Christ says those things about His church. He has a very high view of His church. As we just sang, From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her and for her life He died. None of us love the church the way Jesus Christ loves the church. None none of us have yet shed our blood for the church. And so our, our view of the church can always stand 
to be raised a little higher. None of us can say, you know what, my view is as high as it could be. We, we all need to be spurred on and to spur one another on to a higher view of the church. And if we are to study profitably the doctrine of the church or ecclesiology, that has to be the case. We have to have an ever-increasing estimation of the church if we're to study it to profit. The church is one of the holy things of God. The church is, as the song of Solomon describes it, a garden enclosed. That means consecrated and cut off, secluded for Christ Himself as His own special possession. And a high view of the church is needed if we're going to properly understand the biblical data. Like I just said, we read the Song of Solomon and we say, that eh, sounds like he's going a little too far. You, you obviously don't understand what the Bible teaches about the church. A relaxed view of the church will take the details of a study like this as if they were mere opinions or suggestions. If you don't already have a high view of the church, then when we begin to study the church, you'll think, well, that's one way to look at it. That's one way to think. But those are some good ideas. But you won't really be able to understand it the way the Lord intends for us to understand it. So our view must be as high as we can get it. We, we want to have our view of the church as, as close to the view that Christ has as we can get it. And in order to do that, we have to first clarify our foundation. We need to make sure that we're all starting from the same place. If we, if we start from different starting lines, then we'll all finish at different finish lines. What we want to do is start from the same place so that we can finish at the same place in our study of the church. And so in order to do that, I want to this evening just spend a few minutes in three passages of Scripture... And I want to say this before we look at them. The reason for this, I, we, I'll say this as, as a pastor, I need your conscience on issues regarding the church. Now, I can only get that based on the Word of God. So, so I, all of our consciences need to be gripped by the Word of God so that when someone who's in the lead says, come on, let's go, everybody says, correct, let's go that direction. So we all need our consciences together, but specifically as a, as a teacher, I need your conscience. By the end of our time this evening, especially as we look at these passages of Scripture, if you say, Pastor, I don't believe that you've handled the Word of God correctly. I believe you've gone too far. Well then we're going to have no ground upon which to move forward. And if that's the case, it would be your duty to come to me and to say, you've gone too far. You've gone beyond what the Word of God has said. You've gone and, and you're trying to bind consciences with your own opinions and views and you can't do that. You need to preach a retraction. That would be your duty. If I've gone too far. If I've merely laid out the biblical data, as a believer, your conscience ought to be held and you ought to be able to say, not because he said it, but because the Word of God says it, we are ready to move forward. So, the first passage that I want to look at is Hebrews 3, 6. So turn with me there, if you will. Hebrews 3, 
6. There we read, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So the first question I want to ask of this passage is, how is the church described in this verse? And the answer The church is described as God's house. And the author says, We, speaking of the people of God who hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, the people of God, the people of faith, the church, we are His house. That is God's house. See? The church is called God's house. And so just like Jacob who said in Genesis 28, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So also we should say of the church, Surely the Lord is in this place. How awesome is this place! This, the church, is none other than the house of God. Now, men, you have a house. What does it mean... Most of you have probably been at that place where you've had to say, this is my house. What did you mean by that? What are the implications of your house being your house? What does that mean? Well, there are several things. That means that's the place you live, your dwelling place. It should be your place of, yes, labor, but also rest and delight. We should want to be at our house. But when you say, this is my house, you're also saying, That you are the authority at your house. That you have the final say on matters at your house. That other people cannot come to your house and dictate how you do things at your house. Now they can say all day long, well at my house we do this. You can say, that's great. Right there's the door. If you want to do things the way you do them at your house, then by all means, make your way to your house. But this is... My house. What did we just see? The church is God's house. Which means negatively, the church is not your house. The church is not my house. The church is not your place of business. The church is not a birthday party, a baby shower, a backyard barbecue. The church is God's house. Now, going back to the text, we could ask, and hopefully it's already in our minds by implication, but... Who is in charge of this house? It's God's house. Who's in charge of God's house? Well, we would say God's in charge at God's house. But specifically from the text, it says that Christ has been set over God's house. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So God in Christ rules over God's house. The picture is that the Father has placed His Son in the place of rulership over the church. We read in Ephesians 1, God raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So Christ has been placed in the position of sovereign power over everything, but in a special redemptive manner, Christ rules over the house of God. Christ is the head of the church, we often say. He's over the house of God as God's Son. And our confession says in chapter 26, paragraph 4, the Lord Jesus Christ is head of the church, in whom, speaking of Christ, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. So God in Christ is over in charge of God's house. The Pope is not the head of the church. Uh, The pastor or pastors are not the head of the church. Get this, the church is not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. He's the only head of the church. There would be no church apart from the eternal wisdom of God. There would be no church apart from the atoning work of Christ. We would not have a concept of the church apart from God's revelation in His Word. We would not have come up with this on our own. Now, how do I know that? Because I can look at carnal men and see that whenever they want to profess Christianity, one of the ways that you you can definitely tell a false professor from a true professor is very often they have a low view of the church or even despise the church because it's not natural for us to do the church. Now, to get together and have fun, shake hands, smile, greet people, feel like you're a part of something, people like that, but that's not the church. The church is far more than that. The church is completely a matter of special divine revelation and institution as God's house. Now, that being the case, what should be our recourse when it comes to the question of how we ought to conduct ourselves as a church? So imagine this, you're... You, you find yourself in a church, or we all got together and said, okay, we're here, we're a church, what do we do? Or imagine you met someone on the street and they said, i just become a Christian, or I've just joined a church, or we've just started a church. Based on what we just read from Hebrews 3.6, how would you answer the question, what should we do? Where do we go to find out what to do as a church? Well, that leads us to our second text. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Turn there with me if you will. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I'll read verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Here, Paul is absent from Ephesus. Timothy is in Ephesus. Paul hopes to come to Timothy to help Timothy in Ephesus, but he's not there yet. And so Paul has written this letter to Timothy in his absence so that Timothy will know what? What did it say? 
how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So what is our subject? Again, the subject is the church of the living God, the church. The church is called what? The house, household or house of God. Again, we've already seen the church is the house of God. Now, what is implied here in this passage regarding the etiquette of the church? The etiquette. Children, etiquette is the customary code of conduct, the way that you ought to act in certain situations. That's the etiquette. Now, etiquette at a trampoline park is different than etiquette at a wedding. Right? You can see the difference in different places. The customary way to act is different. So here's the question. What is implied here about the etiquette of the church? I'll give you two options from this passage. Option number one, there is no etiquette. There's no expectation at all. Do as you please. When you get together as a church, do whatever you want to. That's option one. Option two, there is an expected etiquette. And everyone is required to follow it. Which do we see in this passage? We'll notice what he said. I am writing these things to you so that, skip a few words, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, many times we'll say, you know what I think you ought to do? You ought to do this. When I was a kid, we did this, and we did it this way. That's what you ought to do. So when we hear the word ought, we, we think of it like, just a suggestion, somebody's trying to give you good advice, okay? That's not what this word means here. The word ought here is the word day, and it's D-E-I. Many times it's translated must be. For example, when Paul lays out the uh, qualifications for the office of an elder, he says an, an elder or an overseer must be day. That's what the word ought is here. It's, it's a requirement, a necessary obligation. Others have referred to this word as the divine ought. In other words, God is saying, here is my requirement. This is the same language of absolute necessity that is applied to the sufferings and death of Christ Himself. In Mark 8.31, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. That's the same word, ought. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. There was not another option left for the Son of God. He must, in His mind, in prophecy, in the eternal plan of God, He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must die. He must be raised from the dead. That's the only way, the, the only plan of God that there is. That's what He's saying. Well, that's what this word means here. Paul says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought, how one must of absolute divine necessity behave in the household of God. How one ought to behave. So that, that is to say there is an obligation laid upon us with regard to our behavior or our conduct in the church. And there's no discussion on the matter at all. God doesn't say, I, I'm, I'm taking opinions, I'm serving. He says, it must be this way. 
Now, where do we find God's requirements? Well, Paul just said it. I am writing these things so that you may know. So in the absence of the apostle himself, we have this writing of the apostle, and the writing of the apostle was to be sufficient for Timothy. In other words, we would say we find the requirement, God's requirements, in God's Word. God's Word. So the church is God's house. Christ is in charge of God's house. There is a code of conduct that must be followed in God's house. And the code of conduct is found in God's Word. Now some might ask, okay, Sure, we find God's requirements in God's Word, but aren't there some things that the church might run into where we have to look outside of God's Word to help us know what to do in the church? And that leads us to the third passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Turn with me there. Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, Paul is again writing to Timothy. He's still writing to Timothy to instruct him on conduct in the church. Notice that he says that Scripture is profitable for these various aspects of the ministry, teaching, reproof, correction, training. And then we have this word, that. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that. This word, is the word henna. And everything following this is, will sometimes be called a henna clause. That, that tells us that what follows is explaining the purpose or the goal of the action in this verse. So the goal of the action is that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, there is debate on who Paul's referring to as the man of God. And I go back and forth. I thought I was convinced until this week. Either, some would say the man of God is strictly speaking Timothy or the elders in Ephesus. This is the, the, the formal title just as we would see of the, the prophets of the old covenant. The man of God. Or, someone might take this as Every believer being considered as a, a, a person who belongs to or is of God. Either way, the point remains, what, uh, what Paul's saying here, God-breathed Scripture contains all that any Christian, whether you're a leader or a layman in the congregation, will ever need to do the work that God has given us to do. God-breathed Scripture contains all that any Christian will ever need to do all of the work that God has given them to do. Paul had said 
to the church of Ephesus, that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. In Titus, he said, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Christ gave Himself to purify for Himself a people who are zealous for good works. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. What, what are the good works? How are we supposed to know what the good works are? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, all of the various aspects and uses of the Word of God that the man of God, either every believer or the pastor as he teaches the other believers, every believer gets this information sooner or later, may be complete, equipped for every good work so that in having God-breathed Scripture, we have everything we need to be thoroughly furnished, fully equipped with all that we need to do all that God has called us to do. That's what he's saying. And, and I would say specifically and especially in the church, as Paul writes to Timothy and on how he's to conduct himself in the church, which is God's house over which Christ rules as a son. So, the church is God's house. Christ is in charge of God's house. There is a code of conduct that is to be followed in God's house. That code of conduct is found in God's Word. And God-breathed Scripture, God's Word, contains all that any Christian will ever need to do all of the work that God has given us to do. In other words, the Scripture is sufficient for this. The Scripture is sufficient. It is enough. We don't need more. We don't need additions. We don't need extra. We're not on a search. We're not on a quest. We're not on a journey. We already have it in God's Word. Now, our natural tendency is different. Our natural tendency, and again we see this in, in many places, our natural tendency is to bring our own inventions to the church, to the worship of God. Because our natural tendency, just like the, the little toddler or the small child who is, is sitting and they are thinking what my mom, what my dad wants right now is a, a crayon-colored picture of me and them holding hands. They, what they want is to see my creativity, what I can bring to them. And very often that's true to an extent. But we think that God is that way, that what God wants to see from us is what we have created for Him, what we can bring to the table. We assume that God wants to see how imaginative we can be. Well, the problem with that is, is manifold, but just for now... That way of thinking is completely contrary to faith. It's contrary to faith. What do I mean by that? It's by faith that we receive God's commands, do what God commands, and rest in knowing that we have done what God has commanded. It doesn't have to make sense to us. 
We don't have to be able to explain it. As a matter of fact, many times we can't. As we said just recently, I believe it was on a Saturday morning, it doesn't make sense that we would get together on certain occasions and shove somebody under the water with all their clothes on and everybody gathers around. That makes no sense, except for God said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. It makes no sense that we would take a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine or juice and drink it and, and treat that as a, or, or expect grace to come from God through that act in faith. That, that doesn't make any sense to the carnal mind. We do it because God said to do it. You see? John Owen says, quote, All acceptable devotion in them that worship God is the effect of faith which respects the precepts and promises of God alone. So we want our worship to be acceptable to God. Well, that acceptable worship must come by faith. Where does faith rest? He says, faith respects the precepts and promises of God. Where do we find the precepts and promises of God? In the Word of God. You see, biblical faith is Bible-based faith. Biblical faith is taking God at His Word. And so to worship God by faith is to do what God commands simply because God commanded it. Period. God, you said do this. And as I do this, knowing that I have obeyed you, my heart is full of joy. Not because of what I see or, or hear or, or experience necessarily, but we're pleased because we have obeyed God. That ought to bring us delight. And our faith is tested every time we gather as a church, really. God tests us here by, by saying or asking, Will you find pleasure in doing what I have commanded? Or will you sit secretly longing and desiring to add to my commandments. Because God knows our hearts. If we sit and we've done all that God's commanded, but in our hearts we're saying, well, I wish I could, I could add to this. I wish I could do more. God says, you're not, you're not delighting in what I've commanded. You're delighting in what you can bring. That's not what God has commanded. Surely we as believers, we, we want to please God. We want to know at the end of the day, especially a Lord's Day, we want to know, has, have we pleased God today? The only way is to do what He has commanded. Obey His Word. That's the only safe place. There is no safety in bringing the inventions of man into the worship of God or the order of the church. We might, we might think, you know... I really think God is, is pleased with this. You think? Is that sufficient? You think? Oh, what if He's not? Then you've sinned against Him. A Christian would ought to rather die than sin. We don't want to walk that path. How can we know? How can we know that He's pleased? Just do what He says. Obey His commandments. The bedrock of ecclesiology. The study of the church is this. The church is God's house, ruled by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is in God's house a code of conduct, a behavioral mandate that must be observed. And that code of conduct is found in God's Word and God's Word alone. And those who cannot rest and delight in simple obedience to God's commands 
those people at best, they only pretend to love God. At worst, they hate God. You say, that's strong language. Well, God, speaking of those who would not submit to His method of worship, His prescription says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third, on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's God's word with regard to the second commandment. God says, you worship me the way I have revealed myself, not by idols and images and the inventions of man. Those who do that are those who hate me. We look at what God has revealed of Himself. We look at what God has said in His Word and we say, I think I'll do something different. God says, what you're saying is you hate me. You don't love me. You love what you can bring. It's a dangerous thing. Now this whole series that we're going to go through is just going to be an application of all of that. That's, that's the bedrock. That's how, how, how we need to think. We will use the Word of God and with the navigational help of some of our forefathers to come to a more settled understanding of church matters. I do hope, and I haven't mentioned this until now, but if there are questions that you have on your mind about church things, church-related issues, whatever they are, uh, write them down. Put them in the offering box. They'll get to me. And we'll, they, they, more than likely, they're going to be things we will address. But if not, we'll, we'll address those things. Uh, I don't, the reason I say do it that way, I, I, don't, I don't have enough confidence in myself to just do a, you know, off-the-cuff Q&A. I think people get themselves, themselves in trouble that way. And I, and I don't want to get myself in trouble. And I don't want to say anything that's wrong. Um, but, but you might have questions that, that nobody else has ever thought of before. So if you do, write those down and we'll, we'll, I want everybody to be able to, to pitch in and, and learn what, what they feel they need to learn. Uh, I, in saying that, I don't want you to think that what I'm saying is, uh, I have no idea where we're going next week. I need you to give me some, something to, to work with. We haven't begun this study without our own reasoning. Uh, for a while now, I've been thinking and watching and writing down things that have given rise in my mind to the need for a, a study like this. I have watched, or you know, a little, I'm not obsessed, but I kind of pay attention to some of broader evangelical and Reformed uh, things. Uh, I've watched and heard things that have gone on in other churches. I've watched and observed our own congregation. And I, I began at some time ago to make a list of, of what I see as problems or potential problems or errors that exist among many Christians and in many churches today. Uh, some of these are things that I've seen in this church. Some of them are things that I haven't seen in this church. My, my assumption is if, if they have not yet graced the doors of our church, there's always the potential that they could, and so, to, so preventative care is always very helpful. Uh, and if nothing else, we, we, if we come to the end and we say, we already knew all of that, well, to say the same things is easy for me and it is useful for you and so it'll just be a reminder in making this list I tried to group these things into three categories I don't think the categories are very clean cut and I may not even consider the categories but I do want to read you this list that I have made with some comments 
And this could be another thing that maybe you have sat and you've watched and you've noticed some problems, some errors in our church or other churches. And you say, this, this needs to be addressed or uh, spoken about. You, you can write that down and get it to me. This is not exhaustive. Uh, some of these have been errors in my own thinking. I don't want anybody to think that I've just sat back and I've been taking note of what everybody else has done wrong. Some of these are errors that I found in my own thinking that by God's grace I, I, I seek to correct and want to bring back to the, the bar of Scripture. We want to be right. We want to please God. So let me read this list, and I want you to listen. And either these things... Examine yourself as, as you listen. These things will either pique your interest or pierce your heart. You might say, man, that's me all over. Uh, or you might say, man, that's weird that some people think that way. But these are some things that I think are uh, errors or problems or, or uh, ignorances that remain or that exist in, in the evangelical church world that need to be clarified. Uh, and I, I think there are 19 of them. The first is the universal local church relation and distinction. Now we've talked about this before, but it seems to con continue to come back. Um, the difference between the universal church, the local church, how they're, how they're different, how they relate to one another. There are, there are some historically who completely reject the idea of a universal church. Uh, in our day, the table has sort of flipped to where the, the doctrine of the universal churches has been taken and people use that to pretty much downplay or outright despise the local church. So we need, we need to understand how they relate to one another and how they're different. The second one, uh, devaluing covenant church membership. This is not new. It, it happens in many places. Very few realize what it means to make a vow before the Lord and to covenant, to make a covenant with other people. That's what church membership is. As I've said before, that historically the church membership covenant was, was about on par or, or stronger than a marriage covenant to, in, in some places. But there's a problem with devaluing that. A third one, maintaining an independent spirit, whether personal or familial. I mentioned this a little this morning. Many Christians believe that the church as an institution should be secondary to their, their individuality or their schedule or their whole life. And many Christians have no problem situating their family at odds with their church and beliefs or practices. And they say, well, well, my family just doesn't do that. We just don't do this. We, 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 thinking, especially men, husbands and leaders, thinking they have spiritual priority over the leadership of the church in, in every area. In some areas that's true, but not in all. But that independent spirit that, that remains in many rather than the, the spirit of solidarity that we mentioned this morning. Number four, uh, the confusion about the difference between joining a church versus being admitted to a church. Uh, this goes back to the authority and autonomy of the individual in church matters. But the average believer in our day, and I think this comes from the, the revivalist uh, mentality where the invitation goes out and people are just trained to come and walk up to the front and say, I'm here for what, whatever this guy is selling. I'm here for that. Give me some. But a lot of people 
are, are trained to think that they as an individual are the deciding factor in church membership. And so they will, we've been in churches like this. You come to, you want to join the church? Come to the front. Sign up, fill out a card. If you're ready, you're in. Well, the reality is that biblically it's the church who has the final say in that. The church admits members into her number. The church takes priority over the individual in that regard. And there is a process for how that is to be done. Number five, um, a failure to understand just how seriously God takes His worship and His church. Now, that's very general, but I don't think, as I said when we began, I, I don't think we, I don't think the average church really has a grasp on just how serious God takes His church and the worship of His church. We are, we are very, very relaxed in our culture especially about the church. Number six, misunderstandings with regard to leadership structure. Uh, we are Reformed Baptists. I said that this morning. Hopefully no one has forgotten. Uh, we're not Presbyterians. In a Presbyterians, the elders have the final soul rule and say in all matters, period. Elders, that's it. We're not Presbyterians. We're Reformed Baptists. Neither are we Plymouth Brethren, where nobody's an elder. Everybody just sits around in a circle and just kind of pops up and, and leads however they want to, and everybody has the same, thing, same say in everything. We're not that either. But there are misunderstandings with regard to the leadership structure of a, of a Baptist, what we would say a biblical church. Number seven, devaluing the corporate gatherings of one's church. The corporate gatherings, maybe it's, uh, you would say, well, being with the church is high on my list, but, but if I miss, if I'm, if I'm absent, it's really not that big of a concern. Many people feel that way. Uh, many people have a very low view of uh, meetings outside of Lord's Day worship. They say, well, I, I, I'm going to come to church on Sunday. Anything outside of that, meh, we'll see. That's a problem. Associated with that is a failure to understand what the corporate worship service is. A failure to understand what is happening when a church, and we talked this morning about definable boundaries and rules and obligations of a church, many people don't really understand what happens when a church gets together for a worship service. The corporate worship service is not the prom. You know the prom? It basically everybody shows up to hang out with their friends and show how much they spend on their dress. Look at me. The worship service is not a prom where you just show up and see friends and show off your, your nicer clothes. Uh, the corporate worship service of a church is not graduation. Hey everybody, I'm graduating. Here's the date. Come see me graduate. That's not, the worship service is not graduation. It's not a performance. It's not a show that we invite friends to come and see. Come, come watch our worship service. You've seen that worship service. You should come watch ours. The, 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 the gathered worship of the church is not that. And very often we will decry the seeker churches for their performance-driven services. The, the basic mentality is come and see, but then we will do the same things. Come and see blank at my church. Well, my friend invited me to come see blank at their church. 
It's the same thing. That's not what a worship service is. It's not a performance. The worship service is a solemn assembly of the saints of the Most High God where we come apart from the world to a stated, consecrated, holy place and holy time to draw near to our God and offer Him our gifts and receive His grace. Acts 5.13 None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. It wasn't normal for lost people to say, Hey, you want to go to church? Just go watch what they're doing. No, people didn't dare join them. 1 Corinthians 14, 23-25, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, that is, if outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God really is among you. It was not, it has not ever been normal for outsiders to come into the assembly of the worship of the saints. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't. I think the back pews should always be a place where the lost can come in and hear the gospel. I'm not saying don't invite lost people. But our attitude about what a worship service is, is often, come watch. Come see what we do. Come visit. But that's not what it is. The place that we gather and the time that we gather, they are not essentially holy. This building's not holy. There's nothing holy about 10 o'clock on the Lord's Day morning. But they are made holy by the holy people gathering to do holy things in that place at that time. I don't think a lot of people understand what a corporate worship service is. Number nine, a misunderstanding of the duties of the pastor elder. Some will put more on the plate of the elders than is biblical, making them basically deacons. Other people will put less on the plate of the elders than is biblical, and they just refer to them as the preacher. He's not the preacher. He's the pastor. He's an elder. He he, he shepherds and he preaches. But a lot of people don't really have a, a good biblical view of that office and its duties. Number ten... Promoting personal opinions to the level of Scripture. As we've already seen, Scripture has to be our, our foundation, but still a lot of people say, well, I think it should be like this. Well, at our old church we did this, or at my friend's church we did this, or I saw on YouTube such and such does this. Well, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with having those opinions as long as we know that those opinions cannot be held at the level of Scripture. See, everyone must come up to and submit to Scripture. Everyone does not have to come up to and submit to personal opinions. And it's really just not possible to cater to everyone's opinions. That's why the Word of God is so safe, so simple, because we don't have to cater to many opinions. But that is still very common. Number 11, a practical denial or rejection of the regulative principle of worship. You'll you'll hear very many people, even amongst the the so-called Reformed, who will say, well, I know the Bible doesn't command this, but it also doesn't say we can't. The Bible doesn't forbid it. That's the normative principle. That's not what we do. We have the regulative principle. 
God's word says do this, that's what we do. God's word doesn't say to do this, then we don't do it. Again, that's very safe. But there's still confusion or practical uh, denial of that in many places. Number 12, misunderstanding the realities of appointing church officers. Misunderstanding the realities of appointing church officers. You will hear people say, uh, we believe in a plurality of elders or we need more elders. Listen, raising up elders is not like playing duck-duck-goose. Christ gives elders. The church receives. Christ gives deacons. The church receives. If you don't understand that, you'd be thinking, why, why, why don't we just pick some men to do it? Does it, will, it? Can anybody do this? But that's not the way it works. But there's a misunderstanding about that. Number 13, misunderstandings about who should and should not lead in worship. Misunderstandings about who should and should not lead in worship. In, in most churches, or I should maybe say many churches, there's no concept of leadership in worship. There's no concept of the duty of conducting the service given to someone. Like if you, when you go to a wedding, you're assuming somebody's here who's going to what we say, officiate this thing, right? In a lot of churches, when it comes to worshiping the Most High God, there's no concept of who's going to officiate, who's going to conduct the worship service, and those to whom that duty has been given. In many churches, leading the congregation in, in worship or conducting the service of the church is just a matter of taking volunteers. Well, can anybody do something? We've got the preacher, so that spot's filled. We've got a worship leader, whatever that is, that slot, slot's filled. Is there anybody else who wants to do something? And we just sort of fill in slots. But that's not the biblical method of doing church. So misunderstanding about who should and should not lead in worship or conduct the worship service. Number 14, a rejection of the doctrine and the application of the Christian Sabbath. Again, we are Reformed Baptists, we do hold to the abiding validity of the moral law of God. We do believe the Sabbath commandment is still in effect and applicable to Christians. And a lot of our Lord's Day uh, activity is affected by how we view the Sabbath and what we believe about the Sabbath. But there, in many places there's a rejection of it, or at least a practical rejection of it. Number 15, ignorance of the instructions for dealing with sin in the church or church discipline. A lot of people don't really know how we are to deal with sin in the church. Number 16, a refusal to follow the instructions given by the Lord for dealing with sin in the church or church discipline. So 15 was ignorance. People just don't know. 17 is a refusal. We've had people here. You go to them, you say, well, the Bible says you ought to do this. Not going to do that. Well, well, you know, that's what the Bible says. Nope, not happening. Well, okay, just outright reject it. I'm not doing that. Well, that needs to be addressed. That's a problem. Number 17, underestimating the responsibility that you have to the other members of the church. Uh, there are many who think that, that church is only the Lord's Day, which is incorrect. Many people arrive 
to the, the service of the church on the Lord's Day and expect that, it's, that, that the elders and the sound people have a job to do, but everybody else is just sort of here to, to watch the thing play out. A lot of people, when you ask them where do they go to church or where are they a member of a church, in their minds they relate that with where I get my sermons. And that's it. It's just a place to go and get sermons. Many Christians don't consider the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to them and the obligation you have to use those gifts to the other people in the body, the church. You have a responsibility to the members of the church. The scriptures say if God's given you a gift, you are obligated to use it. You must. You don't have an option. You need to use it. Number 18, reception of doctrines, but ignorance of practice. Uh, Being a Calvinist does not make somebody reformed. To receive and affirm certain doctrines, if it doesn't lead to an alteration in practice... Well, it's useless. Doctrine, that doesn't change you. It's useless. Lots of people want Calvinism, but very few want a reformed or reforming church because that's where it gets uh, a little, uh, that's where it gets difficult. It's easy to think, well, I believe rightly, just as long as it doesn't affect me or my relationship with anybody else or the church. But when you, when you begin to apply these things in real life in the church and the Reformation to be reformed has specific application to the church, not the individual. To reform the church, that's where it gets difficult. A lot of people don't understand that. Number 19, this is the last one that I had on my list, a misunderstanding of how men are prepared, appointed, and sent by the church. Uh, Many people think that if a man wants to preach, he should preach. If a man wants to teach, he should teach. Well, the Bible says differently. There's actually a a process by which men go from the pew to the pulpit. Here's the order. Then outside the walls, somewhere else. And our confession actually lays it out. It's amazing. Biblically, from biblical precedent, of course. So those are mine. Again, feel free to to add, add to those, and, and uh, if one of your problems is pastor paying too much attention to what everybody else is doing wrong or being too nitpicky, you can write that down. Um, but what have we seen? We could go on and on. We, we, we can, just, just, just within our own selves, we can, we can name problems. But what have we seen? The Word of God was given to address this stuff. We have the Word of God. We're not left without light. The Word of God is sufficient to address these things. Nothing on that list, or I should say, there, there is nothing on that list that we would say, here's a problem, we've got nowhere to go. Nowhere to turn. We, we're just clueless. Nothing. Because the Word of God is sufficient. And at this church, the Word of God must be our immediate recourse. And, and I would say, humbly, as long as I'm here, the Word of God will be our immediate recourse. That's... That's the, you're going to have to bring forth a Bible to a conversation. And that's where we will deal because it's God's church. It's God's house. And so the plan is, is to take these types of issues and, and, and address them. And I won't go through them in a, in a list form like that, but address them biblically, specifically. Um, again, bring your own questions. I think attention to detail and especially things that the congregation is seeing or has seen elsewhere and questions that people have, that's the best way to hammer these things out. Because you might say, i got a question about this, and I would say, I've never thought about that. That's never, 
never been approached or never been brought up. And, and we can run to the Scriptures with it. So that's the plan. In conclusion, what is the great danger in getting these things wrong? What's at stake here in this study? Leviticus 3.10, Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. The great danger is that we do not sanctify the Lord, we do not glorify the Lord, we do not obey the Lord, and God says, fine, you can, have, you can play church all you want to, I'm going somewhere else. And we, we continue on just like we're doing here, just like this, 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, and we have no idea that God is nowhere in our midst. I don't want that. I pray often, Lord, if that's going to be the case, let me know I want out. I don't want that. We want God to be near. As we've said last week, we want the power of God. So that's what's at stake. I, I hope that, that we'll be able to take these things seriously. Let me pray and then we'll, you'll be dismissed.